Hello and welcome to Room Escape Divas. This week we are joined once again by Scott Nicholson. Woo! Woo! <laughs> so enthusiastic. <laughs> Hello everybody. Thank you for having me on. Yay! Hello, Scott! So we are here this week. I believe, what is it Mike said, 75% of the divas are currently sick. <laughs> so, oh, Wait, no. who's sick too? I think I'm Ruby's sick. I'm going to keep my distance from all of you then. You know, so Ruby's sick too? No, I think I ate something wrong for lunch. Oh, okay. As Scott was was mentioning he was really honored that both Ruby and Mike are here as well. And that's exciting because we haven't had Ruby and Mike on in a while. So we realized that if we want them on the podcast, we have to invite Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't miss a Scott Scott's Nicholson Scott's the magic key. <laughs> yeah. So we should hear what Ruby and Mike have been up to. I don't know. We've just been busy. For me, it's like school and work. Yeah, I, I've kind of started another podcast, but that has nothing to do with the escape room. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about that podcast, Mike? Uh, long story short, it's on a show that I've been really obsessed with called Kim's Convenience. But uh, if you want to know more, just follow me on Twitter, Mike Yuan eighty two. Why you don't tweet not that much about it? <laughs> Sarcasm, Meryl. No, no, I don't see you tweeting that much about it. <laughs> or you just blocked me. Mute this conversation. No, Mute no, I didn't. Guy. <laughs> okay. Well, you finally unlocked the power of podcasting and the fortunes that they bring in, and you've decided you don't want to split that money with three others, so you're going to start your own. To, <laughs> that to, is true. To yeah. To roll in the millions. <laughs> <laughs> and that we are right at this moment in fact so we're actually we have scott on today for a very specific reason because scott you have just completed your first semester of a live uh, let me know if i have this right a live um sorry live action gaming design course and with a focus on escape rooms correct right so the course was actually called escape room and puzzle design Okay, I wasn't sure. That's okay. We just make it up every semester as we go until finally we nail it down and then get it approved by the Senate. So uh, you start with these sort of courses that you're feeling out and saying, well, maybe I'll try this, maybe I'll try that. And then when you're happy with it, you write it all up and send it to get it formally approved and on the books. And it did. That's amazing. I decided to run it as an elective for our game design students. So I decided I'd take on up to 40 students in the first time it ran. And out of the 50 or so that was eligible, uh, we ended up with 35 taking the class, which quite surprised me. I didn't expect to have it be quite so full. So that created some interesting adventures for having a full boat uh, the first time I ran the class. Yes, and is this the first time that anyone's done an escape room design course, or is this, or is, I'm, sh I'm, I don't know if there are others in the world or not, or if we can make that claim. As far as I know, I asked around before starting it. It's the first one in North America. Um, there have been courses that I've run overseas uh, on the topic, but I, I didn't find anyone else who said they'd run one in North America. But so who knows? It's certainly the first one run by Scott Nicholson, so I can make that claim. <laughs> So what were your initial ideas for, well, we know what the, what the main project of the course was because we attended it. It was a, uh, a large-scale scavenger hunt, correct? Right. So we uh, actually created a 
uh, a live action theatrical puzzle based event uh, modeled after ones that uh, you all had done uh, as we saw that would be a way to do something that could engage all the students and, and get them involved with something. Um, the challenge, some of the challenges I faced, so many of the students coming into the class had never done an escape room. And that was an assignment I had given them by email ahead of the class. Your first assignment is to go do an escape room somewhere. Because a lot of our students are actually more focused on video games and haven't done mm. so much in, uh, other than the, cla- the tabletop games I have them play in my tabletop design class, which they've all taken. Their own passion is in video games. So that's the first interesting challenge is working with a group of students, some of whom admitted up front that they aren't very good with puzzles and they are looking forward to figuring out more about puzzles by simply learning about them. Oh, fun. So so that was the majority of the students had never done an escape room? That's quite surprising, actually. Yeah, about I'd say about half of them had not done an escape room before I required them to do one for the class. Um, so that was... It was interesting, very different sort of a thing that I would come into then if it was, say, a a group of enthusiasts, a group of people who liked escape rooms, they wanted to explore creating them. Uh, When you're dealing with a group of people, many of whom don't have it as a passion, uh, but they're taking it as a class because it sounds interesting to them, uh, then sometimes you have to take a different approach on how you teach something. Yeah, totally. So what was the... What do you think the biggest surprise was when the students started taking the course? Well, um, I think... A lot of them did not expect that we would start so much in the world of narrative and player experience because that's, that's really where we started. I think a lot of them expected we were going to just start right out with puzzles. And uh, the way that I view escape room design, you know, that puzzles are nice, but puzzles are tools that are used to create an experience. And mm-hmm. one of the tools that we have in the toolkit, just like technology, a technology in escape rooms, it's a tool that we have in our toolkit. Um, but what we're trying to do is create a player experience. And that player experience, uh, the way I like to teach that is really from a narrative approach that we think about what's, what's the role the players are in and what's the narrative we're creating. And that's where we brought Mandy in very early on in the class, the second week of the class, to talk about that, those concepts of narrative. Because I really wanted, if I have the chance to create 35 new escape room designers, I want them to start in the narrative. I want them to start with the role the player's taking on and choose the puzzles and the technology that makes sense for the world they're trying to build. Yeah, that was a fun, that was my very first lecture, let alone Skype lecture, but it was uh, pretty entertaining to do. How do you think it went? I learned a lot from it. (laughs) (laughs) I learned that doesn't matter what the subject matter is, somebody will fall asleep in that class. (laughs) And... (laughs) Or be spending their time staring at their phone or their whatever. And I'm like, staring at their this phones. is a games class. How can you? <laughs> <laughs> I know. You, this, is, this is like one of the most exciting things you could learn about. And you're still bored. Darn yeah. it. <laughs> and that's, I, I, that, sadly, that is always the truth. And, and so when you have and all these students, most of these students were majors in the game design program. But still, I run into that at times. I'm like, you know. It, it, it's not going to get any better for you. So <laughs> if this is not interesting to you, perhaps this is not the field you want to go into. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I actually came in as opposed to Skype, because... I think I would have done better in person, but it was a little intimidating with Skype. I find I can pick on students easier if I'm there in person than if it was over Skype, then I wouldn't be able to see everybody. 
Yeah. So yeah. So we started with uh, we. The first week was about the history of of escape games and sort of presenting what brought us to here. Where I presented the uh, some of the articles I've written about the topic, and then we talked about setting a player experience you want to create and using narrative to help create that. Thinking about the player role, um, and then we actually went into looking at talking about the concepts of of flow and gating. So what do locks do? What do different rooms do in an escape room? And how you're creating a gated based, a gated experience. And during this time, the student's big first assignment was to p- find an online flash-based escape room game and, and analyze it and draw out a map of the challenges, the puzzles, everything that went into that space uh, to really think about how did this online game gate challenges? How did it gate content? How many different things were the players presented with at once? They've all studied the theories of flow. The idea of the game should get more challenging as it goes along. Um, And so looking at how to use, how to create flow moments in escape rooms. Because I wanted them to come in and and look at some more of the theory side of things first before actually getting to the nitty gritty. Because then we moved into puzzle design. And that's where we brought Errol in. (laughs) How much did you troll them? I'm just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Poor kids. I talked at them for a long period of time, though. Poor guys. Did you? T- how many things did? You, how many times did you say the word stupid? No, I didn't. I maybe I don't know. Actually, <laughs> you're like you shouldn't do this because you're stupid. <laughs> well, one thing that was very handy is we had quite a few of the leftover props from the train game. <gasps> yes, and that's so right. That helped we me out able, a lot. <laughs> in both of your uh, both your presentations, I was able to pull those out so the players could see hands on what the sort of things are that they could consider making for their own game. Yeah, I think one of them was I was talking about uh, the concept of putting way more work and effort into your props than anybody will ever notice. And I mentioned the newspaper and I was trying to describe it and all of a sudden it just flashes in front of my screen because you're holding it up for the class. <laughs> yeah, so they, like, we had oh. enough copies to pass it around. And it was interesting to watch during that first part, only one of them clued in upon that there was another puzzle in the newspaper. Oh, <laughs> So I saw I was watching them mess with it, and one of them folded it up and was looking at something, and so the rest of the class didn't pick up on that. So it came back out with Errol's uh, talk, and it was a neat aha for them to see this thing they'd seen before, uh, but now it all of a sudden unlocks into a new level. Nice. Very cool. So we moved into puzzle creation, and then what we were doing in order to create the large project for the class um, is the other piece of each class. It was a once-a-week class is that we were spending time looking and thinking about what is the overall player experience and narrative that we want to create for our large-scale historical event. Uh, So we had worked with the historical society to identify a story and then worked with the students to say, all right, what's going to happen? What are the big pieces of that story? What are the story beats we want to include? and identified six major story beats and then split the class up and had every student create a puzzle for this game that would be around one of these story beats. And that was their big second assignment, was was creating a puzzle. And so that's, that's 35 puzzles then that had to be uh, designed and then decided upon. Right. So that was because what was important to me is I wanted to make sure everyone had a chance to be involved in the creation of this. And that one problem with group projects is you can have people that loaf and uh, and don't do anything. So I wanted at least to have them, everyone have some skin in the game. So I graded their puzzles, uh, as, but also during that time, they were assessing each other's puzzles. So we split the class up into groups. Each group looked at the six puzzles that had been submitted for a possible story beat. 
and identified either one or two puzzles. And it was at this point when we decided to create a family version and a gamer version of the game because we saw that we had some puzzles that were fine but very simple and other puzzles that were interesting and more complex. And we said, well, why don't we actually use that then and allow players who are coming to our event to choose if they want a more difficult challenge or they want a more story-based uh, challenge. So when you graded the puzzles, did they learn anything from my talk? <laughs> wow, Mr. Narcissus. <laughs> some did, some didn't. Um, so, you know, some, uh, some people figured out that, yes, we need to make sure and have checkpoints that we need to make sure that there's only one right answer that, and some uh, some didn't, and that's how it always goes when you provide assignments. Now, what I like to do for my classes is I allow students to redo their projects. So people that had some struggles, I gave them comments and feedback, and they also then got feedback from each group because I had an assessment form, and then they were able to use all of that to revise and resubmit those assignments uh, for regrading in the class. Nice. Because I always, my, I would prefer mastery-based teaching when possible because my goal is not to set a bar and say, you didn't make it, here, have a D. But I'd much rather say, well, you didn't make it, um, and here's what you need to do. I'd like you to redo it, and I'll give you a better grade. So I, uh, I, I probably end up – it's been interesting trying to adjust the, to the Canadian grading system because there are differences. Um, but oh. <laughs> I think in general I grade more easily at the end of the day because I allow students to redo their projects and improve their grade. And if everyone gets a good grade, that's fine with me. So during this time, then we were trying to put together, piece all the puzzles together, fit them into the uh, overall arching narrative, and then get ready for our, our first big playtest. So we invited a number of our first-year students who are not in the class to come. And if we were going to – because they, they had heard your talks, and, and we were talking about how to avoid bottlenecks and how to avoid these sort of problems with a large-scale game. So we brought in about uh, 24 people to run six teams simultaneously in order to test, because our, our intention at that point was to launch six teams at a time. And we wanted to see how does that work with six teams. And after that play test, we then reduced it to three teams at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and said, all right, we're going to reduce the, the overall capacity of the event and learn from our play test. The play test fell apart. Uh, it, it was, uh, you could see the students, some of them were crushed. Um, and <laughs> You know, when you watch things that you've made and, and they're just falling apart, people aren't figuring them out and things aren't working and you watch as this happens, um, you know, we know that's how it goes, that, that when you do a play test, things are going to fail and mm -hmm. you say, yeah, well, that didn't work. Um, so how do, we, how do we improve it? And one of the tough things with any, any development process is giving up your babies, the things that you love the most. Um, so for me, so the, the idea of this was you were investigating uh, something that happened 150 years ago in Brantford. Uh, there had been some recent evidence brought to light that perhaps there was more to the story than originally was assumed. So one of the things we had put in originally for the gamer track was that the players would be given this letter that they had found – and the players would ask from that letter, hey, is there anything that we can research about X? And when they identified something out of that letter that we had evidence on, they would then get the next puzzle. So it was going to be narrative-driven, and the players were going to have to analyze the letter and figure out what they wanted to ask for. And I really liked that idea. I thought that's going to get people in that investigative mindset. But what we found is it, when we did testing, we had some teams that ended up with three or four puzzles at the same time, and they got completely confused, uh, overwhelmed with other teams that were just completely lost, that I don't know what to do. In order to 
guarantee a more successful event, we ended up going with a more linear approach of, of leading the teams through the narrative piece by piece and creating another mechanism in the game to help people keep up with the narrative by making it simple and straightforward and more directed. But I do feel we lost uh, something by not having it be more freeform. Yeah, your your students were telling me after the event uh, some of those ideas. And I know that my narrative brain was just like lighting up and so excited at that idea. But I understand completely how it could like derail in, in that kind of setting. Yeah, and especially since we were creating something where we knew we were going to have a lot of people who I think we only had two teams out of our 16 teams that had significant experience. The rest of our teams were all relatively new to the escape room world. So we're talking about challenges in that. And, you know, obviously you you plan out this course, you have a, a set uh, sort of lecture schedule and you and you have a, a plan in mind but how much does that change with a brand new design course like that over the course of over the course of the three months well and it, it for me actually whenever i put out a syllabus i always label it as perma beta because i change my course based upon what's going on in the room of people that i have in front of me um so I, and I know that that's unusual. I know a lot of faculty members just stick with the same old stuff. And yes, we've done it. Dust off the lecture notes. Phew, go inside and do the same thing. But I don't do that. I try to be flexible. So for example, um, I'm teaching my analog game design class right now this semester. I had the intention of going in and having students do math every week and math homework. And I was finding that this is just not working. It's distracting from the board and card game design. So I changed the way that I'm approaching math and the way we're approaching those assignments. And I'm having them play a lesser role um, so they can focus on the things that are more important for the outcomes of the class. With this class, very much I was, I was figuring out as we go, all right, here's what we need time for. So in this case, uh, there's going to be big changes from the next time I do this. I ended up putting a lot of effort myself into making this large event happen because mm. I was the glue that was holding together 35 students. And I found when you have 35 co-designers on a project, you end up having to provide a lot of glue to connect all of that together. So much so that I think the students actually missed out on some experiences they could have had had they had more responsibility Mm. Um, but what I found is I was giving out handles of responsibility and things weren't getting done. And I was very worried about doing something because <laughs> we, were, we were running well, without a net. It's like, this is a public event. It is going to run on this day and these things aren't happening. So I'm like, fine, I will go to the wood shop and I will build the door because the door is not getting built. And it's the one piece of anything we really need to have working here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So I threw in eight hours in the wood shop building the door. So I knew the door would would function. Um, so next time I've decided what I'm going to be doing with this class is rather than have one large event that everyone is part of, I'm going to split the class into groups of six to eight. And each group is going to make a 20-minute escape room. And we are still going to have an event where we invite people in, but you'll come in and you will play a number of these small rooms. So we, if we're in the same building, each group will have their own room to set up their escape room in. And people can pick a room and queue up and play the room and the students will reset it. And so that's, I think, the way we're going to do it next time rather than have one big event. And that's going to give each group more autonomy about what's mm. going on. It's going to give the students more control about their own little world. It will put me in the, a role I should be in, which is more of advisor and assessor as compared to producer. Because it was kind of hard. I, I, being the producer of this made it hard for me to be in the, the role a, a teacher should be, I felt. 
it became more of like let's put on a student play and I was the <laughs> producer, um, which it doesn't necessarily correspond to a class. You know, it doesn't if it, it might be something different if I were to run this as, hey, this is a side event that we're going to put on, which is kind of what we're doing now, that uh, you know, things that we do is we're doing designs for other organizations. It's a bit of a side event. I don't have to play that same role of, uh, of producing something. So that's the way I'm going to do it when I run the class again in another two years. So it'll be like your very own escape room Disney World in a way. Right. And actually, it was funny because part of this class, um, I did a lecture on environmental storytelling. And so for that class, I ended up using, I picked one Disney attraction, the Indiana Jones ride, and really spent about two hours just tearing apart the queue of the ride and talking oh. about everything in that queue that's used to tell their story. And so we're not even going to really look at the attraction itself. We're going to look at the environment they create in the queue to the attraction and everything they've done. I don't know if you know that, that ride or everything they've done with it. But even in the queue to that ride, they have an alternative language uh, that they use. And so there's coded messages all throughout the queue. Oh, so when they first opened the ride, you could get a postcard that showed you the very symbols and what letters they corresponded to. Now you have to, you can find that online, but you, there's all these messages that go throughout. There's 20 letters that if you put them together, it will tell you the story of the attraction. And so there's a lot of stuff they've done uh, looking at the queue. And it was funny. I was giving this lecture, I'm, you know, giving a lecture in, in university. And I look outside and my entire door is stack of brack with first-year students listening into the lecture. <laughs> because it was, it was like, oh, he's talking about Disney World. It's exciting. <laughs> um, so it was really funny to look out there and see, oh, wow, I've attracted a whole bunch of first-year students. Instead of were their faces games. pressed up against the glass? So they actually had the doors open into the lab, and they were just, they sort of filled the entryway. So they'd cut off, I had the lights out, and they'd cut off the light coming into the room because there was just these bodies of, of people watching the lecture um, of, as I was talking about, and analyzing a Disney attraction. But they, they do environmental storytelling well. Um, and then we finished up the class looking at tech and looking at going through uh, generations of tech. Oh, dear God. Um, <laughs> so I, but I did feel it was important to introduce that concept to them. And it is a case where I know there's a lot of talk about the Gen 1, Gen 2 tech and how bad it is to label rooms. But in this case, as an instructor, it's very nice to be able to say, okay, we're going to talk about these different generations of technology and here's how they're sorted and here's how they're talked about. Uh, so that's actually a case where I find the labels useful uh, when I'm talking about different types of technologies and how they integrate with a room. Um, so that, but I didn't, and I know that if I had presented the tech first, then I would have had students trying to figure out how to make an Arduino work uh, or not work in the event, even though it really doesn't need to be there. Um, so we got away from that. And even the one piece of tech we did have, uh, we had bought a, uh, a mixer board that allowed us to launch sounds with different buttons. And even that didn't work right for the first half of the groups. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Not surprising. Right. Yeah. So that was a sort of, I think uh, Errol pointed that out in our, when we had a postmortem with the class. It said, you had one piece of tech and it failed. You know? <laughs> So I think the students got out of it. Actually, what was nice, so some things that happened, we had two of our students volunteered at the library, and they ran their own escape room for the library um, <laughs> about a month later. So they, the, in the public library, they ran a Phantom of the Opera, Phantom of the Library escape room. 
Oh, and that is so They cool. planned it out. They set it up. They brought it over and showed it to me and did some testing. Um, I helped them out and gave them. They actually took a pavilion and set it up inside of another room in the library because they needed a second space. It was cool to see students as on their own, just as a side project, do something like that and volunteer. And so they ran this room for, they ran it for a day in the public library and they had teams coming all day long and the library wants to do it again. So um, so it's nice to see when you get people. Oh, and another nice thing that came out of that. So a new escape room opened in Brantford in November and most of the GMs are students who are in that class. Oh, oh. oh so, fantastic. Yeah, so I've met with their owner and she wants to continue to hire out of that class, students that took that class and hire them. So I know that those students are now working with her to design their second room for that escape room facility. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's that's so. Those are some cool outcomes that happened. Um, one of the things we do try to encourage our students to do. I was actually just at Ubisoft last night. They had a faculty event here in Toronto, so they brought together game design faculty. And one of the things they really emphasize is that if you want to get a job as a game designer, you need to have a side project that demonstrates your passion for design. Uh, something you can point to and said, yeah, I did this on my own time. I got it all the way to finish. And here are the things about it that I'm excited about. And here are the design elements that really are important to me. Um, because I was surprised to learn that uh, in these large companies, uh, designers are very focused on one very specific thing that they're going to design. And so Ubisoft said, well, you know, we know students coming out of school aren't going to be specialized, but if we can see something they're passionate about, we can then figure out what kind of designer they're going to be. Are they going to be better designing AI? Are they going to be de better designing progression and levels or designing camera and controls? And, and if they look to see what a student did as a passion project, they can say, ah, okay, this person really likes this kind of design we're going to put them into this area and get them exploring things. So I encourage my students to do these side pa side projects, these passion projects, because it does it is going to make them when they go out to the market, give them something to show to say, hey, here's something I did based on my own interests, and you can really see my own strengths of design in this project. That's pretty cool. I did see you tweet about that and how you were at that uh, that meeting or conference. That yeah, sounds so they, really neat. they run this each year. This is well, this is the second year they run it. So they invite. Um, there was about 60 faculty members from around the GTA who all teach game, either game design, animation, art, or programming. And so they started with tours of the Ubisoft facility and then had an overview talk about the different college programs. So they run several nice programs to help college students uh, explore their skills. And then they uh, broke into different groups. So I went into the design group. So there were about 15 of us talking with four of the designers from Ubisoft and finding out what they look for in their new employees, what sort of skills that they are looking for students to bring in, what toolkits uh, that they use, uh, so their process, how they break things down. So it was interesting to see behind the curtain a little bit of how all of that works. I know how it works in the tabletop world. That's my expertise. It's tabletop world and, and the escape room world, but um, I'm not as well versed in the video game world. That's not, we have another faculty member in our school who does the video game stuff. So for me, seeing the video game side of things is uh, interesting and useful. One of, I remember one of the things you told the students in the in the debrief, or as soon as the event was over, and we were, you know you were congratulating them. You mentioned, you know, guys, this could make a perfectly good digital game as well. And it was kind of fun to see their reactions, like, oh my gosh, yes, it would. And yeah, yeah, it was funny how they 
we do talk about in the tabletop game class how you can make a board game and use that as a, a prototype for a digital game. Um, in fact, at Ubisoft, we were watching as they showed Lego-based prototypes for their um, video games. And it's like that's what they do. And so, I, and then when I at the end of the class, I said, you know, think about this event we just ran, this historical event. And you could now turn this into a video game where you as a player would explore. And if you think about your games, you know, you could take any of the games you run, these theatrical games, and make it into a twine game. You could make it into mm-hmm. a an adventure game where you're running around a space where you're still exploring all the stories. You're getting the backstories. You're interacting with your non-player characters. You're having the puzzles. You're having the experience that a single player would have in this larger digital game. And so that that concept to the students have said, yeah, you just you just made a prototype for something you could make into something digital was quite surprising to them. And we got a chance to play the game, too, which was awesome. So let's hear your tales uh, as as players. (laughs) So, well, it was it was a shame because, you know, it it was a rainy, rainy, very rainy day. And not, not the best day to have something where you have to go outside a couple times. Yeah, <laughs> which we darted down the street. It was fun. I think what was nice about it was that you had designed it in such a way that you could kind of meander your way through the experience. And yeah, when we can spoil it, it's not going to be run again. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it was well. It was designed to be about two hours, I think, and that was at a that was at a leisurely pace. Right. Yeah. We d- so we, that was a design decision early on, as we said, we're not going to have a tight time limit on it, um, because as it was a historical event, we wanted people to take the time they wanted to explore it. So the only time limit we did set is that you know we're going to shut everything down at, at five. You and you, I think you all were the la- one of the last teams to start at three thirty or so. Mm-hmm. We, um, I think we so. start about three or three. Yeah. yeah, something like that. So we we did that on purpose as we wanted to let teams not feel the time pressure, which is unusual for the escape room world. Usually we build our stuff around time pressure. And so we wanted to create something that in this historical game was like, well, we want you to explore the story and interact with characters and have fun playing with the game and not be so stressed about finishing in an hour. Right. And, um, oh, yeah, that was the other thing. You kind of teamed up with the criminology department as well, right? Right. So our our criminology department actually provided, they came in several times in the class because what we wanted to do is we wanted to make it an investigation game, but not a forensics investigation game like most of them are. Most most of of investigation escape rooms are forensics based. You're checking the fingerprints and the blood splatters and things like that. And we wanted to look more at a criminology approach and help the players who play through the game under- learn a little bit, oh, okay, criminology is more looking at the social settings. Uh, who did this person hang around with and what did they do? What, was their, what were their social determinants of crime? And looking at that side of, the, of crime instead of looking at the forensic side. And also trying to pose this question that there's not necessarily a good and bad. It's different people have different social situations that push them into these decisions they make and so we wanted to play with that in the game cool yeah so all i really knew going in because we had sort of it was a possibility that we might be helping out with it was that it was going to be a historical game that it was going to be based on a specific historical event in brantford but apart from that i don't think we knew anything and so we walked in and we learned that we were um time travel or sorry um what is it time criminologists or something like that 
Yeah, that you were applying to join uh, Framed in the Past, a, an agency that had the ability to look into past events and learn more about what was going on. Right. And so we had a literal framing device um, <laughs> that we would use to... <laughs> I loved that it was a framing device <laughs> that was a frame <laughs> and uh, uh, that we would use to as a window into the past. So it had the ability to let us see events of the past in certain locations and it would react. And one of the things I really liked about it is that really there was no holding hands as far as when we could start using it. And it took us a few minutes. Uh, I think the first place we went, we had to go to a pet shop or one of the first places we went was to a pet shop. And <laughs> we sat there talking with the, with another group. We sat there talking with the owner of the shop for like five minutes, I think, just wondering like what what's going to happen? And we completely forgot that we had this whole device that we could probably use. And the funny thing is after we used it, cause we figured out, Oh, we got to use the frame. The other poor family who are brand new still had no idea what was happening. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I think the students that were acting it at the time had to spell it out even more. Okay. So we use the frame to look into the past. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what have you got there? It looks like a frame. You could see a lot of past through that, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and the frame concept came to solve a couple logistics problems. So we wanted people to have a glimpse into the past. Uh, but the problem is if you put people in the past in a present setting, it breaks a lot of things. It's like, well, why are there cell phones here? And then you have to deal with costumes. And then you have to deal with Oh, all believe this me, stuff. we know. <laughs> so we said, okay, why don't we do it like this? That you have a frame that you can hold up and look through. The students will then do a vignette, but you're not interacting with them at all. You are able to watch this vignette that's played out when you look through the frame. Then the frame is attuned to a certain time period, so it's going to trigger a specific vignette with someone. But the and some I think your group as well as some others figured out if you make the look through the frame again, you get to make the students do the vignette again for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a cackle. The <laughs> yes, you did. So we we went to the wood shop at one point. We at like there was this, <laughs> so there's a student slash actor there who played out his scene when we held up the frame and did and was very good at not cracking because we we were treating it like an anime every time we opened that frame and <laughs> he was a little bit nervous too huh? he was a bit nervous he was, he was a little <laughs> bit nervous and so he plays out the scene we're done we're walking away and then i look around and i see mike and i see ruby and i'm like well where's errol and then in the distance you just hear "Frembo." Yeah. Oh God, he's doing it again, and we rush back, and the students like sitting there re doing the whole vignette again. <laughs> and like, well, it was funny because he was actually, oh, he's here again. He's fishing around in his pockets to find his script. He was so confused. <laughs> Poor guy, he was great. Yeah, one thing I tried to help to get students to uh, take on acting roles is any student that had an acting role, they actually also wrote the script for their own role. And oh, that's, so, that's a better idea, yeah. Right, so that was their contribution, is I said, okay, you know, if you take on the role of this person, you're going to do research and you're going to write their own lines to make you as comfortable as possible being able to present this, you're writing your own lines for yourself. Interesting. That another fun thing about the event was, or what I really liked was for the 
verification method for the puzzles. And once you were done a puzzle, you had to know if you were done or if you had the right answer. You had to bring it to a machine to to get it verified. And the machine was basically um, a curtain across the room that and and with a table. And there were students behind there that would make all sorts of ding, sound effects. Ding. Yeah. <laughs> All, all sorts of, of the, sound effects. All of that <laughs> machine stuff, the sound effects and everything, actually were – that was made up during the day as we advanced. Oh, there, was really? a student, there was a student who wasn't even in the class who just wanted to do something. And so <laughs> he's like, I want to be a part of it. I'm like, okay, um, here. And I gave him a couple things from the lab. I said, make sounds when <laughs> the machine's working. And that became a whole life. This this machine became a life, a, a thing that, that – uh, t- that, came to life so it's one of those things that you know have the i think had we uh run it again then we could actually even make more out of the machine it's one it's like it's tech but not tech <laughs> yeah tech power human tech that's right so that actually was that that allowed us to do our verification of puzzles and allow us to distribute the next puzzle uh because the idea was it was a big computer interacting with your frame and picking the information that the frame saw and then saying oh, okay you've got what you needed go do more research so do you hope to reuse the frame mechanic in another game at some point in time? So we are going to the concept, and actually I guess we should talk about the finale of it because that sets us up for the next one. Um, so the frame for the past organization, the nice thing about that organization is we can now use that to explore other points in time. That mm. the we can next time I run this, we can pick out a different historical time and a different thing that happened and use that same concept, the same mechanism um, to, to explore it. But this time, instead of having just one big thing, my thought is that if we have six groups, each group will be exploring a different moment in the past. So these rooms that you do, you'll go into the facility, and then each one will be its own little jump into the past to explore something. So this game ended after you explored everything. Then the, the frame was able to send you into the past for a few minutes where you could observe uh, what had actually happened in order to get that information. And so the players, again, this whole thing was a test to see if they'd be good for the organization. So the players were told, well, yes, you'll be able to go into the past. Um, you won't be able to interact with anyone. You'll be kind of like a ghost, but you can interact with things. But you, should, <laughs> but you shouldn't change anything. Most teams <laughs> respectfully entered the past and watched the students play out the vignette and then made some decisions as to what to do. Yeah, man, fans, <laughs> most teams. Okay, <laughs> hang on. So I saw when we got that pamphlet at the beginning, and it said, "Please do not try to alter history." <laughs> My first thought was, "Oh, I got to see if I can actually do it. If it's actually an option." <laughs> so, yeah, I, I screwed us up big time. So yes, uh, should do you want to tell it from your view, or should I tell you tell it from the way I heard it from the students? <laughs> Well, let's hear the student view. (laughs) (laughs) So the room escape divas, on the other hand, being the escape room experts that they are, you have told them they have five minutes to achieve something. And therefore, of course, the first thing they're going to do is ransack the room. (laughs) So the poor student is is standing there starting to give his uh, soliloquy. And the students had decided that he was going to have a bag full of money. Now, I had thought, okay, you'll like want a couple bundles of cash. They thought it'd be really good to like fill a bag full of plastic coins. So the uh, divas rush up, grab the bag, dump it out everywhere. <laughs> Coins go flying. 
as the poor actor is trying to continue on and trying to think, well, what would I do in this situation if, if all of a sudden I dropped the bag? And so he played it off like he dropped the bag and, uh, and money went everywhere. Um, what actually happens in, in the game itself is, and this happened in reality, they found there was a, a tightrope walker that went missing. Um, when they tore down the city hall, they found a body inside a closet in the city hall and speculation is that that was the tightrope walker that went missing there's no uh, that was actually something that the historical society brought to us even though there's no evidence to connect those two things together they said well isn't this an interesting possibility and so i said okay we'll play with that and so the the players see the tightrope walker get locked into this closet uh, the latch gets closed and then the person who was working with him leaves the room and the tightrope walker's banging on the closet door saying, please let me out. And the players are left with a couple minutes to make a choice. Do we let this tightrope walker out but therefore changing the past or do we not? Do we leave it alone, leave the past as it is and just come back with the information? So what did you do, Amanda? <laughs> so after about 30 seconds of listening to the poor tightrope walker call out for help, just being like, is anyone there? Hello? I decided against Errol's wishes to go and unlatch the closet because I, I just wanted to mess with it. I honestly did. And so the tightrope walker comes out. It looks kind of startled that, you know, the door magically opened and then rushes out of the room. And then we were left there <laughs> and our walkie comes on and our our um, evaluator, I guess, comes on the walkie and is just like, you just ruined history. You have like two minutes to figure out how to fix it. And I knew how to fix it because they just needed a body, right? If in order for history to be corrected, they just needed to find a body in the closet. So Errol was quite happy to agree that I should go into the closet and be locked in. And so I was locked in and then, you know, I heard something on the walkie, probably something like, okay, you guys can come out now. And, or like, okay, you fixed it. And so Errol, Mike and Ruby left and I was left alone in the closet. <laughs> That was that was the justice served. <laughs> Errol did say during the game, it's like, you're the one who let him out. Now you go in. I was agreeing. Like, it's okay. I can do this. And I just, I was the one to pull the door shut. And and then I, I was waiting there for like a minute or what felt like a minute. And then I thought, I'm just going to let myself out because I could reach my hand around the door and undo the latch all by myself. And when I opened the door, there was Scott with a camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so of, of the teams that played, about two-thirds of the teams didn't change the past. They watched what went on. The person got locked in the closet. They didn't affect anything. And I think this is part of because most of these teams weren't escape room players. Mm -hmm. That they came into it and said, okay, we're watching this vignette. We're watching what's happening. That's fine. We're not going to let them out. Um, if you were given the power to change the past but did not, then the organization embraced you and said, yes, we trust you now. Because all of this in the story behind this, this, you didn't actually go back in time. It was a simulation to test you to see what would you do if you had – could you just observe or would you interfere? So about two-thirds of the teams just observed. And so they got sort of that, that ending path. The second ending path is the one you all experienced. And, and so about a third of the teams went and let the tightrope walker out. He ran away. And then they found out, oh, you've changed the past. You have to, you have to do something about it. Um, out of the third of the teams that got to that point, most of them ended up locking someone in the closet and leaving them behind. 
<laughs> if you were willing to sacrifice someone, then that also got you to the ending where the organization embraced you because they said, okay, if you do screw something up, you're willing to fix it. You're willing to do what it takes to fix it, so we'll invite you to be a part of our organization. Mm -hmm. Or the uh, there were two teams that uh, got to that point, and they refused to lock anyone up. So they changed the past, and they said, that's fine. It's changed. We're not going to lose anyone. And if they did that, they then were not invited to the organization. They were told, I'm sorry, you know, you were given the power to change the past, but we told you you should just observe. You changed the past. You didn't fix it. Um, we can't really trust you with this power. Thank you for playing. With those teams then, as they walked out, they were greeted by one of the students who was working for the organization with a little, come here, I got something to tell you who uh, informs them that we watched what you did and I'm actually part of a rival organization that believes we should go into the past and right wrongs if we can. Would you like to join our organization instead? Hmm. And so we ended up having, of the teams that made it to that point, one team refused. They said, we don't trust you. We don't want any part of this. And the other team accepted. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> wow. we ended up having different rewards for the players. There were pins that we'd created based on whether you were in, in – framed in the past and stayed with that organization or writing the past. Um, and that conflict between these two organizations is going to be at the heart of the next set of games. Ooh. I'm very excited. I, I love that ending, actually. The, like, the fact that all three endings had something exciting about them. And I've done this before with narrative-based games that we didn't want to lose. That, that, that No, you lose. No, it's just different paths. And there's different paths that you explore. And in this case, um, in some ways, the students, I think, were hoping more people would, uh, would go down the lost path uh, <laughs> and explore that. So you know that, hey, we're going to join that other organization. But one did. So that's enough to allow us to continue with that in the narrative, of the meta-narrative of this, that next time around, each of the games will actually be focusing on some sort of ethical moment in history where players can get involved and, and have to make a choice based upon what went on. And it, and it is, uh, we actually then had a debriefing with some of the faculty uh, to talk to the team. So we didn't just turn people out into the wild, um, like with a lot of escape rooms. It was important for us to have a debriefing. So you could talk about the experience that you went through. You could, we had a historian um, and we had a brochure that everyone got talking about what was fact and fiction from the game because that's a problem I have with some historical games where that's, they've made some things up and they don't tell you what they made up. <laughs> so we wanted to make sure that players came out knowing, yeah, this stuff really happened and here's the stuff that you made up completely. But you had a chance to talk with some historians and things like that. One of the uh, things we came away with was that we needed a cleaner break out of game for the debriefing. We had that comment that people weren't quite sure when the game was over. And so we needed a cleaner break, sort of, okay, the game's over, but now here's this debriefing to be able to talk about what you just went through and what you've learned. Um, and do you have any questions about the history of this? Because we had a history professor then who was on hand to then answer questions about the history of all of this. Cool. So if we show up to the next one with pins, with our pins, will we then be put into a particular organization? <laughs> Oh, we'll have to ask the students that sign up for the class next time. That will be a question. I don't even I know where my pin is. Mine's on my night table. I think I gave mine to Mike. He has you them. Put it on oh, your, on yeah, your pet. So. Your googly-eyed pet that you abandoned in her car. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that will be some of the challenge next time around. I'll be bringing that up to the groups to say, all right, is there something special that's going to happen for people that played last time? And uh, what's going to happen with this? Um, that's going to be a challenge they have to face. And not me. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny because, uh, I mean, I remember being told you can't talk to anybody in the room 
and you can't manipulate them, but you can manipulate objects. And that was our, like, I saw that as my permission as there's something hidden somewhere in here. And I remember yelling out because the actor had a piece of paper in his in his pocket. <laughs> and I was like, yes, a paper! And you could just immediately, he like snatches it out of his pocket <laughs> and starts like reading it right away because I was just about ready to like snatch it out for him. Leap on him. No! <laughs> yeah, what we wanted to do in that room is we kept it sparse and we kept the, so the closet had just a very simple latch that wasn't, that we didn't want it to be a puzzle because originally the latch was going to be a puzzle that you'd solve in the room. And we said, well, if there's a puzzle in the room, people are going to want to solve it. And that gets away from actually asking the ethical question that we want them to decide, do we want to open the door? So we, we want the, the actual puzzle, quote unquote, is do you open the door and change history? And then what do you do about it as compared to a traditional mechanical puzzle of fiddling with? Because originally we were going to have a mechanical puzzle, but I knew puzzlers would then just do it, even though it maybe isn't the, the thing that they would ethically want to do. Oh, it was very, it was, it was a lot of fun, that part. I really enjoyed it. It's always interesting because when you create a game that has multiple paths, you just assume one path is going to be taken by everybody. And then when the game starts, you're completely wrong. <laughs> and that's, that's what happened when we did our wedding event. We just assumed oh, yeah, everybody yeah. Would, would be able to solve it. And and one of the events, no, it was, we were completely wrong. Didn't depend on the power of acting. <laughs> so we were very happy because we got we got a chance to do the second ending, and we didn't expect. I mean, I we made provisions for a second ending, but I don't think we even practiced it. No, no, we didn't. We we're like, okay, guys, just, just everybody just die at the same moment. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those things from take pit plucking from immersive theater, you know, and that's some of what I was doing here is giving the players that power to be able to adjust things. And by having the last event be this little escape room and uh, we actually had different physical paths you walked based upon what happened to you and that what your choices you made in that escape room so that we could cue the actors as to what they should do. Because uh, you have to solve all those puzzles. How do you let everyone know down the chain what you should be doing? And um, how do you do that without uh, – you know, we could try radioing ahead and all that stuff, but we had noise as an issue. So we just created different physical paths. And it's like if they come this way, you know to do this. If they come that way, you know to do that. Ah. And we just made sure the players understood uh, based on what they did to take the, player, take the uh, team in a different route. But instead of having everyone together for that ending, each group could get their own ending and their own uh, exploration. What we had hoped would happen and really didn't is that there'd be the teams would mill around together more wearing their pins and create some interesting interactions between people uh, with the different factions as their pins. But not so much. But yeah, that didn't, well, basically people left when they got, after they finished their debriefing, most people just went ahead because the weather was awful and people wanted to get home. If you have them steal from each other, then they'll interact. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so many liabilities, <laughs> especially in a university setting. <laughs> so it was an interesting overall experience. Um, I was happy with the, I know the approach I took is different than many would take, not leading with puzzles in tech, but instead leading with uh, the st narrative and experience and then presenting the puzzles in tech as tools to teach, to bring about a narrative, to bring about an experience. This is why we're using puzzles in tech. Um, but, and my hope is that the students got that on the way out because what I found, this is, actually we do the same thing for a whole degree program. The first year is theory and analog game design because we don't want to start them on digital game creation because we know what happens is if you put flashy tools in front of someone, they will make a game to use the flashy tools. 
And we see that in the, the escaping industry right now, that someone orders a flashy puzzle or a flashy piece of tech, and then they build something to use that as compared to going the other way and saying, what's the experience we want to create? What's the tech we want to pick to have that experience? And what, um, apart from, I know that a couple of students are now like running escape rooms in the library and that, uh, what else was the student feedback like from the course? So I think a lot of them were just thrilled to see something that they did actually make it out there. For many of them, this is the first game that they've had the public engage with, and actually people pay money to come and play. And so that was exciting for me to have them be able to have that experience just as students. And that's something that'll be good for their, their, their Vita. Um, we tried to have them, I had them do a postmortem, an individual postmortem, where they were able to talk about, and I was able to read those reflections afterwards about what did they really like. One of the biggest comments I saw across the board was trying to get some understanding of how do you manage a large team? because this is the first time they've been on a 35-person team that had to produce something. And so watching the methods that I used on how to manage that large group and how to keep everyone working and moving forward, that was something that they got out of this class. Even if they have no interest in puzzle design or escape room design, simply how do you get a large group to produce a game with a date and ship it, you know? Because <laughs> we couldn't delay, it had to roll out, uh, and getting to see that process. And all of them came back with, more playtesting is good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. There was one student, I think at the end when we were talking about stuff we liked, Errol liked one of the puzzles, puzzles in particular, and he named it. And then everybody got excited, and they, they pointed at one of the students, and he's like, he, he liked your puzzle! It was your puzzle he liked! But he wasn't paying attention at the time, or he was, like, busy with something else, and then he just, he never got to hear that feedback. <laughs> I felt bad. But yeah, so that uh, next time, uh, I'll be teaching that another two years, but what I'll be teaching this next fall is a class on gamification and gameful design. And so that's the other sort of specialty class that I offer. So our students, in their final years, they, they have one year they can take the escape room class, another year they can take a gamification class from me. Very cool. That's exciting. So Scott, I was wondering, you were saying how because these students may not have had prior um, experience with regards to escapes or escape rooms or even adventure games necessarily, if you were to teach sort of like a, continuing education class for adults where you can get the escape enthusiasts to come take this course, would you? Why would you want escape enthusiasts? They'd just be angry, bitter people. <laughs> no, because they would have that experience and like, knowledge and they might do things differently or they will do things differently. They complain. <laughs> Not everyone complains. <laughs> Yeah, I would suspect even if I taught a continuing ed class on the topic, I would end up having a similar mix. I might, I might have more enthusiasts and owners in that room. Um, I think about this, if we were to do a class like this at the Unconference, for example, or at an event where you, where you brought people together, um, you could certainly go uh, further, I think, because you wouldn't have to... I don't know if you could, now that I think about it, though, because... There's a lot of really badly designed puzzles out there in escape room land that indicates uh -huh. people do need to go back to the start of, okay, this is signposting and this is why a puzzle needs just one solution. So things that I taught these students, I, I don't know that I would assume that everyone that was an escape room enthusiast would actually know. We would be able to draw from a lot more experiences and have a lot more stories in the class, but... 
basics are still important and uh, you people may just because they're passionate about something they may not necessarily have that base level of understanding uh, narrative and puzzle and those sort of concepts so what would be nice would be having a mix of experiences so that I could create groups that had both experienced and non-experienced people working together to create new escapes um, because the experienced people would bring a variety of things they've done, but the non-experienced people could learn from that, but they could still base it in what is a good sound design. And then if it were really experienced people that were all good at it, I'd want them to teach the class. <laughs> <laughs> Guest lecturers. Yes. Sorry. Speaking about the unconference, is is there one happening in 2018? Um, I don't have one planned right now, uh, just because I have. Uh, well, I guess I can say I have just started doing the design of the Red Bull Escape Room World Championship Season Two. Ooh, wow. All right. And so there's a, a larger design team. Uh, you, some of the names that the team's not yet been announced. I've been told I can say I'm involved, um, but you will be pleasantly surprised to hear the names of people who are on the team. There are other people who are well-known in the escape room community that are going to be involved this time. Wow. So I'm pretty excited to have that, have that going on. And so that's actually uh, bubbling along as well as some other escape room designs for other large companies that I can't talk about at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so I have not been looking into an unconference planning because I have the, these other uh, projects that are actually rolling in my way. No, awesome. makes sense. And I, is that happening for 2018, the Red Bull Mind Gamers? I believe they've not yet announced anything on the timing of it. And that's, as you might imagine, they're very specific about what I can mm -hmm. say. We'll just say that uh, it will happen at some point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's about, about what we can say. Uh, but there should be some more details rolling out soon about what's going on. But I am, uh, I am involved as, uh, as I am significantly involved with the project again. And it will be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> No, it'll be interesting. Yeah. And now there are more cooks, it sounds like, as well. That's right. So we have, uh, uh, and, and a lot of that, actually, I was pleased that they took my suggestions about, you know, we need to have people involved in this role. We need to have someone involved in this role. We need to have th these other things going on. And they said, yeah, okay, we agree. Um, so we actually had in Vienna last month, we had a meeting in Vienna where the, a, a big chunk of the team all got together and we started planning ideas and things like that. So it's kicked off and rolling, and, uh, and so I, I, but there's, there's nothing else about it I can say at this moment. It's nice at least to be able to talk about it some, because last time around I couldn't even talk about it at all mm -hmm. right? when we were at this stage. So now this time I can actually say, hey, here's, we're working on it again. The nice thing about that is that if people out there have ideas or feedback, they can say, hey, did you think about doing this this time? And I can say, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> So I would say that does open the door. If someone out there is excited to run an unconference, go for it. <laughs> I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be pretty busy uh, this uh, at least over this uh, spring semester doing uh, several different designs for escape rooms. And do you hope that, or uh, do you imagine that soon there will be more escape room courses popping up around the continent? You know, I don't know. It's been interesting to see the lack of uptake in the academy around escape rooms. Um, you know, I did that first paper in 2015, and usually what happens is one paper comes out, and then a, a bunch more jump on, and a bunch more jump on. And we haven't really seen that. Um, there's some. There are, there are some research that's come out, but I haven't seen 
that rapid uptake like uh, I, I kind of expected. So yes, I would I would assume there will be some that come, but I it, it, it's been interesting not to see the growth um, that I expected to see. Well, at the very least, I'm looking forward to the designers that you're going to be churning out to the rest of the escape room world. Right. Or if nothing else, people that are going into game design in many different spaces who are more familiar with narrative player experience and puzzle design um, going in to make video games or board games or whatever going to do, at least having now this as a toolkit. Um, just in the same way that I bring a toolkit of live action. Oh, I am excited about something I'm doing uh, next month, March. I'm going to Sweden for the Knutpunkt live action Nordic LARP um, conference. Wow. Whoa. So <laughs> yeah, so I will be in Sweden for a week. And the way they do it, the con- I'm giving uh, two presentations there on uh, LARPing and escape rooms. Um, and this will be to the LARP community, the Nordic LARP community, talking about what's going on with escape rooms, how there's opportunities for them to get involved, uh, talking to some educators about how they could use some of these concepts um, in breakout boxes and things. But but most of the event is going to be talking about Nordic LARP styles. Um, they run a thing called a week in Sweden ahead of time where you get to play a variety of Nordic LARPs and get to see some of the stuff going on in Sweden. So I'm actually quite excited about what that's going to add to my escape room design toolkit or the fights I will get into with the escape room community <laughs> when I come back talking more about escape rooms as LARPs. <laughs> <laughs> Give me more narrative games. There we go. Yep. Well, I'm also excited because if you're creating escape rooms, I'm assuming they're in and around the GTA, and we could possibly check them out. More escape rooms is always good. We will see. (laughs) (laughs) We will see if this thing... We're probably not allowed to say. You're not allowed to say, so... That's right. So NDAs are wonderful things. I've been signing many of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us today and, and debriefing about your teaching experience. It was, it was great to see the, the progression last semester for sure. Yeah, and if it's something that you're listening to and you say, hey, that's really exciting, well, some things to consider is you can come to Laurier Brantford or encourage someone that you know. If there's a young student that you think would like to work on making games to change the world, that's our slogan. And so the students do four years of coursework where they learn digital, analog, and live-action games. Um, you can send them our way to, to apply to be a student in the program, and I'll be teaching my next version of the Escape Room class in... 2019. Is that right? Yay! That's plenty of time to apply. And fall 2019 will be the next class. So should you you know or be interested in getting a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Game Design or know some some 16 or 17 year old or 10 year old that you want to nudge our way, send them down. Sounds good. And of course, just to finish things off, if people want to find you, where can they go? Uh, so on Twitter, you can find me at S. Nicholson. On uh, Facebook, I'm there as Professor Scott Nicholson. YouTube is Scott Nicholson. But probably the easiest thing is just to go to scottnicholson.com. You'll find links there to all of my various writing, social media stuff, and all that good stuff. Awesome. Thanks so much for talking again, Scott. Looking forward to your future projects, which thanks may or may not happen. Thanks for having me on. And uh, <laughs> thanks for disturbing my students. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it again. That was awesome. Okay, you can talk us out, man, Pan. Okay. Room Escape Divas is brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other fun podcasts just like this one. You can also go to Facebook and click the like button on the Room Escape Divas page. You can also message us there. I don't know if I mentioned roomescapedivas at gmail.com yet. 
oh look Mike has uh, the video up look at him go <laughs> we're all on Skype so if you would like to oh my god no look at that Scott it was Scott too oh for crap's sake you guys are all jerks all of you are massive jerks yeah no no what is what what I'm worried when you're in the privacy of your own homes, it gets worse. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Uh, Twitter, R-E Divas, hashtag before it, all that stuff. And if you'd like to hunt Scott Nicholson down and reprimand him for distracting me, then you can go to his website, scottnicholson.com. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>